Hello everyone. My name is Ellen Stovall and I too am a cancer survivor. Yes, a cancer survivor. That powerful phrase describes all of us who have been diagnosed with cancer at some time in our lives. There are now about 12 million of us who have had or have cancer. About half of that number, or around 6 million people, have survived more than five years after a cancer diagnosis, while approximately 14% of us, or slightly less than 1,700,000 survivors, have lived more than 20 years beyond our diagnosis. That means that there are many of us who are surviving and living relatively normal lives years after our original diagnosis of cancer. Encouraging news for sure. The end of the story? Not exactly. Welcome to the Cancer Survival Toolbox program entitled Living Beyond Cancer. This is just one of a series of Cancer Survival Toolbox programs. There are also programs on communicating, finding information, making decisions, solving problems, negotiating, and ways to stand up for your rights. In addition, there are other special topics programs, like ones on finding ways to pay for care and topics for older persons, as well as programs on different types of cancers. You can listen to or read these programs online at www.canceradvocacy.org toolbox. You can also download the audio files from iTunes. The Cancer Survival Toolbox comes with a free resource booklet, also available at www.canceradvocacy.org toolbox. Resources and organizations related to each Cancer Survival Toolbox topic are included. Now let's talk more about the topic of this program, Living Beyond Cancer. If you have been treated for cancer, you probably have clear memories of the day you received your last treatment. Maybe you remember putting on a happy or brave face as the staff brought out balloons or a cake or a graduation certificate to celebrate your last treatment. After all, this was the end of your cancer therapy that you were looking forward to for so long, right? Treatment was difficult to say the least, but now it was finally over. That moment may have filled many of us with joy. We were ready to celebrate and get on with our lives. Others of us, though, weren't quite so sure just how we were feeling. Were we happy and relieved to be finished with treatment? Or anxious and afraid that we were now on our own? Were we feeling insecure about not seeing our healthcare team so often? Or were we ready to bolt out the door and never return? Maybe we were feeling a combination of all these feelings. That would only be natural since we still had questions that nobody could answer for us. What would happen to us now that our treatments were over? Will we be able to keep the cancer from coming back? What does life beyond cancer look like? In this Cancer Survival Toolbox program, we will talk about a number of important issues that are specific to life beyond the diagnosis and initial treatment of cancer. While support and resources are increasingly available to help people who are being treated for cancer or suffering from the side effects of these treatments, much less attention is focused on what happens after our initial treatments are done. The reality is 
that we don't simply change from being a sick patient one day to being a well survivor the next day. Cancer survivorship is a day-to-day, ongoing process that begins with your diagnosis and continues through the rest of your life. The people on your healthcare team, your doctors, nurses, social workers, and mental health professionals are some of your best allies in addressing your physical and emotional needs as a cancer survivor. Keep in mind that survivorship does not look or feel the same for each of us. Here are some examples of how different our needs might be. Survivorship may extend for months, years, and even decades. Some survivors continue on maintenance therapy, which is similar to long-term treatments for other chronic diseases, like diabetes and heart disease. Other survivors will live for many years with metastatic cancer, while others will never experience their cancer again. Some survivors may experience a recurrence of their original cancer, or they may be diagnosed with a second malignancy. Others may discover that their cancer treatments have damaged parts of their bodies, such as their heart, lungs, or kidneys. Some survivors recover from the effects of treatments with little difficulty and feel almost normal within a few short months. Other survivors take much more time to recover physically from the trauma of treatment. And finally, while many survivors will recover physically, they may still have difficulty recovering from the emotional or social traumas that can result from cancer and cancer treatment. These challenges can be more difficult to deal with than the medical problems. Linda is an oncology social worker who's seen a spectrum of cancer survivorship. Surviving cancer is more complicated than simply being sick or well, having cancer, or being cancer-free. Instead, it's a continual process of survival that's constantly changing. There may be times when the joy you feel about survival far outweighs any anxieties you may have. Then, there will be times when your fears and uncertainties seem to take over your life, and you wonder if you will ever feel normal again. These changes might involve family and friends who are trying to adjust your experiences after cancer, but often don't or can't understand what you're feeling. Many survivors face challenges in school or at work. You may have to fight against discrimination and fight for the chance to recover at your own pace. And you may need to deal with intense feelings like anxiety, anger, uncertainty, unresolved grief, and loss. On the positive side, many survivors find themselves reevaluating their lives and changing their priorities. They might experience a new zest and appreciation for life and try to make sense out of painful experiences. Many survivors have done this by getting involved in volunteer work and cancer advocacy in their communities and by helping other cancer survivors directly. We hope that this Cancer Survival Toolbox program will introduce you to some new skills that will help you adapt to your life after cancer. The goal is to help you, a cancer survivor, be as healthy as possible within your personal circumstances. This program, recorded on two CDs, contains six sections on issues that are important to survivors. Section one is Living with After Effects, in which we will look at the physical effects of cancer and its treatment, and what kind of records you need to keep. In Section 2, 
intimacy, we will explore the important topics of sexuality and fertility and how close relationships might be affected. In Section 3, Family Communication, we will talk about the experiences and challenges of survivorship that affect more than the survivor alone. Section 4 focuses on the emotional aspects of cancer, specifically in recognizing and dealing with anxiety, depression, grief, and distress. Section 5 provides helpful information on getting your house in order through health directives, wills and trusts, power of attorney, and financial planning. Our program will conclude with Section 6, Living with Hope While Dealing with Uncertainty, with thoughts about advocacy, getting involved, giving back, and maintaining. Many people find it helpful to follow along with written material while listening to each program. If you'd like a transcript, please visit the Toolbox website at www.cancersurvivaltoolbox.org to print this section. Let's begin by looking at how life beyond cancer can affect our bodies physically. Section 1. Living with After Effects The same factors that make cancer treatment so good at destroying cancer cells can be not so good and sometimes quite damaging to normal, healthy cells. You may have experienced some of the consequences of this kind of damage. For example, it's not uncommon for chemotherapy or radiation therapy to damage normal cells lining the throat, stomach, and bowels. This damage can result in side effects like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or constipation. Hair follicles damaged by cancer treatment may stop producing hair, resulting in hair loss and baldness, and possibly the loss of your eyelashes and eyebrows. Parts of your body that normally make different kinds of blood cells may be harmed by cancer or cancer treatment. If this happens, your body makes fewer blood cells and you may become pale and weak with a condition called anemia, or you may bruise easily or catch infections. These kinds of side effects occur most often and are most noticeable while you are still receiving treatment. But now that you're done with your treatment, you probably have a lot of questions. As your hair grows back, will everything else start returning to normal too? Or does it take time to recover from the physical effects of cancer and its treatment? How soon can you put this all behind you and start feeling like your old self again? And does this recovery process ever end? This first section of this program will focus on what happens to your body after you finish your initial course of treatment, how you recover physically, and what you may need to know about keeping track of your health in the months and years after cancer. We'll begin with the first months after the completion of treatment. This period of time is sometimes called the extended stage of survival. Then, we'll talk about the years that will hopefully follow sometimes referred to as long-term survival. The extended stage of survival starts when you complete your initial treatment and lasts for approximately one to three years. This is an intermediate or transitional time when survivors walk a fine line between the land of the sick and that of the well. 
In this stage, you may not feel quite like a patient anymore because you're no longer being treated for cancer, but you may not feel safe enough or confident enough to call yourself a survivor. The medical world calls this time remission, when the cancer appears to be totally gone. Some survivors who have a high risk for the disease coming back may continue to take some form of medicine called maintenance therapy during remission. Many survivors describe their feelings during remission in a number of ways, such as feeling untethered or not being anchored, being in limbo, living in a constant state of watchful waiting, or feeling anxious and fearful about the cancer coming back. Will it happen again? Some healthcare professionals and cancer survivors call this neutral time. That is, a period of remission when you may feel uncertain and may worry a lot about your health. That's completely understandable. In the first place, you can't be sure that the cancer really is gone. And then you may not feel sure about how to look for hints or signs that the cancer may be returning. This uncertainty can be very stressful, especially since it comes at a time when many survivors expect, or at least hope, to feel only relief and joy once their treatments are finally over. During the extended survival stage, you may also need to deal with other health-related issues. Besides looking for signs of cancer, you may be living through lingering side effects from your original treatments. These side effects may include a lack of energy, weight loss or weight gain, or numbness in your fingers and toes. While these types of side effects are usually temporary and go away on their own over time, they may continue to remind you that you have been sick. Although only time will tell, these lingering side effects will usually disappear within a few months. Some survivors, though, have to learn how to live with permanent changes in how their bodies look or function. These changes might include the loss of a breast, a leg, or other body part, or a change in body function, as with a colostomy. They could also include scars, radiation tattoos, or damaged sexual organs. Some survivors may need extra help adapting to these changes. So, referrals from your oncologist to a rehabilitation specialist or mental health counselor may be helpful. Just remember that not everyone has the same side effects, nor do the side effects go away at the same rate. Your doctors and nurses can help you monitor your progress, and other cancer survivors can help you understand what life after cancer looks like. With that in mind, let's hear from two survivors, Alicia and Kevin, who met in the waiting room during follow-up visits to their oncologists. When I was younger, I expected that my first couple of years out of college would be all involved in starting life as a real adult. You know, thinking mostly about really big things like what kind of job I would get, where I would live, what it would be like for me and my friends to finally be on our own. But first, my diagnosis of Hodgkin's disease, it's a cancer of the lymph nodes, and then my treatment changed all that. I finished a full course of chemotherapy a while ago and had my last radiation treatment three months ago. So now I realize I'm a cancer survivor, and it's a whole new world. I'm proud to say I'm a nine-year cancer survivor. One thing I have learned and really come to appreciate so much is how important the bond between survivors can be. Sure, we're all individuals and our types of cancer and treatment histories may be different, but we've all faced the same big life and death questions that most other people have not. 
Talking with other survivors is such a life-affirming experience for me. You connect on everything from major issues to pretty specific questions about treatment side effects. Since I got my diagnosis of Hodgkin's disease when I was 21, just like Alicia, I think I had a pretty good idea of what kinds of questions she might have. At that stage in life, you're concerned about how you look and how your friends and other people see you. Alicia asked me lots of questions like, how long did it take for my hair to grow back? Did it look and feel normal? Or did it grow back a different color and texture? Another issue was weight. Alicia wondered if I was really thin when I finished my treatment. How long did it take to put on some weight again so I didn't look sick anymore? What did I eat? Could I exercise? Another question she had was about bruising. Did I bruise easily? And if so, what did I do about it? Since I was planning on starting a new job, I needed to know what to expect. Would I keep on feeling really tired or would I get my energy level back? I asked Kevin if he had anemia from his therapy and whether he needed treatment to boost his red blood cells. I had experienced chemo brain and was worried that it might affect how I could work. How soon could I expect to start thinking clearly again? I knew that my white blood cell count was low, which could lower my resistance to infections. Since this new job would require me to work with a lot of people all day long, I wanted to know if I'd risk getting lots of colds. So I asked Kevin if his doctor told him to stay away from large groups of people or children to avoid catching colds or the flu after he finished his cancer treatment. Had he gotten many infections? And how long did it take for his white blood cell count to get back to normal? I also wondered about the numbness in my fingers and toes. I asked Kevin if he had experienced that and how long it took to go away. Finally, even though it's a personal kind of question, I wondered what Kevin's doctors and nurses had told him about the possible effects of his treatment on whether he could have children in the future. I felt really good talking with Alicia about her questions. It's perfectly normal to feel worried about these things. It's also important to remember that, though many of us face the same questions no matter what type of cancer we survived, we each recover at our own pace. So I suggested other ways for Alicia to get answers from other people too. For me, that starts with my doctors and nurses. I found that it really helps to write down your questions between checkups, so you'll remember to ask them all your questions. I also told her about the books, listservs, websites, and specialty clinics I had either accessed or heard about from other people. Maybe these would help her too. Simply talking to someone who's been there, a veteran survivor, helped Alicia deal with her anxieties, feel a bit more secure, and start visualizing a future beyond tomorrow. She's starting to visualize her future in the world in which Kevin and other long-term survivors live. It's difficult to describe just when this stage begins. It tends to evolve gradually over a period of years. You eventually begin to think less about cancer and feel more secure about the future. You start feeling comfortable in your body again, or you feel like you have adapted to changes that you must live with. While most survivors who recover from cancer go on to live relatively healthy lives, this by no means minimizes the challenges that other survivors face. These challenges may be of four kinds, recurrence, second malignancy, organ damage, or emotional and social issues. 
The first challenge involves the possibility of cancer recurrence. Some long-term survivors experience a recurrence of their original cancer and need more treatment. This might involve the same type of therapy that initially controlled the disease, but often a different kind of treatment is needed. This is often an excellent opportunity to ask your doctor whether participating in a clinical trial would be one of the best options for you to consider at this time. In contrast to recurrence of the original cancer, some survivors may face the challenge of second malignancy, development of a new and entirely different kind of cancer than they had before. Second malignancies require different types of treatment from the first form of cancer. The earlier a secondary malignancy is caught and treated, the greater the chance for a successful outcome. There are more and more long-term survivors who have experienced second malignancies and have been successfully treated. A third challenge may come in the form of organ damage. Some long-term survivors find that their cancer or cancer treatments have damaged some parts of their bodies, such as their hearts or lungs, ovaries or testicles, bone marrow or nervous system. It may take some extra effort on your part to find a healthcare provider who has experience working with long-term survivors and who can make referrals to the appropriate specialists for diagnosis and treatment. And a fourth challenge involves a variety of emotional and social issues. While many survivors will recover physically, they may have difficulty recovering from emotional or social traumas that may result from their illness and treatment. These traumas are often more difficult for some survivors to deal with than the medical problems. We will hear more about these types of issues later in this program. Surviving cancer is more complicated than simply being either sick or well, either having cancer or being cancer-free. Cancer survival is a continual process that requires you to take the best possible care of yourself. There's one part of being a long-term survivor that I wanted to make sure Alicia knows about. I've survived nine years without a recurrence of cancer. That's very encouraging. But I'm still cautious about keeping track of my health. Since my original cancer has not recurred yet, it most likely will not come back this late. But I know I'm still at risk for developing other medical problems related to my prior treatment. You're probably wondering what you can do to stay as healthy as possible after being treated for cancer. Right now, there is little known about how to prevent some of the late effects of cancer. This means that it's extremely important that you learn how to monitor your health and have regular checkups, as Kevin just said, to catch any changes that you are unsure about. We are also learning more each year about the value of exercise, healthy nutrition, stress reduction, and screenings. Check with your healthcare team for the latest information and specific recommendations in these areas. Meanwhile, here are a few suggestions that may help you develop your own personal plan for life after cancer. Before your treatment ends, it is important to discuss with your doctor what to expect when you make this transition which may include how to cope with change and uncertainty. When you talk about the end of treatment, a treatment summary will be helpful to better understand what treatment you received, and a follow-up care plan will help you and your healthcare team coordinate your care moving forward. If you and other members of your medical team know what treatment you had, 
any issues with that treatment, and new issues to monitor in the future, you will be better prepared to deal with your new health care needs. The treatment summary and follow-up care plan should be shared with your primary care doctor or other members of your health care team. You should also keep copies for yourself. Request a transition interview with your doctor and nurse if you are just completing your treatments, or make a separate appointment if you are a longer-term survivor. Have them help you create a monthly or yearly follow-up plan. Some questions for you to discuss might be, how often do you need to be seen and by whom? What medical or diagnostic tests need to be done and how often? What are the possible risk factors that are specific to you? A list of more questions to ask as you transition off active treatment can be found in NCCS's Teamwork Booklet, which is listed in the Cancer Survival Toolbox Resource Booklet. Another free program called Journey Forward can help you work with your healthcare team to coordinate your follow-up care. The free software helps you and your healthcare team create a customized treatment summary and a follow-up care plan based on your individual treatment. It also makes it easier to organize the information that is outlined in this section. Learn more about Journey Forward at www.canceradvocacy.org or by calling 1-888-650-9127. Get the name and phone number of someone you can call if you become anxious or have questions. In addition to the numbers of all your doctors, you will want the numbers for your oncology nurse and social worker. They are often much easier to contact than your doctor. They can frequently answer many of your questions and can help recognize symptoms that may need further attention. They also can refer you to support groups or other community resources that offer continuing support to survivors who are no longer receiving treatment or who are on maintenance therapy. Ask your doctor or nurse to make photocopies of your medical records for you. These would include surgery, pathology, and x-ray films and reports. Also include details of all cancer treatments, such as the names and doses of all chemotherapy drugs and the amount and location of radiation therapy. Have them list any problems that may have occurred during therapy and what to expect now that you are finished. Make sure you have all the medical summaries from your healthcare team. Many survivors have found it helpful to create their own personal summary that describes their diagnosis and treatment history. Keep track of your medical history. As you collect photocopies of your medical records, you will probably find it helpful to create your own system to save and organize your medical records. This could be a large envelope, a pocket file, or a binder with labeled sections to organize photocopies of your records. You could, for example, have separate sections for your prior diagnosis, your treatments, which should include dates and doses, lingering effects like fatigue or numbness, risk factors like thyroid dysfunction and infertility, and your follow-up plan. This way, you will be able to provide a detailed account of your medical history, no matter what healthcare provider you see in the future. This is especially important with today's medical climate, where people change insurance plans so frequently, 
or if you move to other parts of your community or to another state. You may be able to be seen by healthcare professionals at a long-term follow-up clinic, sometimes called a survivor or survivorship clinic. This type of clinic is staffed by experts who understand the specific issues of survivors who have completed their initial treatment or are returning to their primary care providers for follow-up. While a number of these specialty clinics are already available for children and young adults who receive treatments as children, very few of these clinics have been available for survivors of adult cancers. Fortunately, this trend is changing as the numbers of cancer survivors increase and their needs for a new model of specialized care can no longer be ignored. We should soon see survivorship care and clinics available in many more healthcare settings. With increasing numbers of survivors living many years after their initial diagnosis, we are learning that continued support, accurate information, and accessible health care are all crucial for those who are fortunate to be long-term survivors. As a matter of fact, their lives depend on it. The following section of this program contains some material that may be considered sensitive or personal. Section 2. Intimacy and Sexuality Intimacy, sexuality, and fertility issues are often neglected topics for cancer survivors. At the time of treatment, the focus is on achieving cure or control of the disease. But during and after treatment, cancer survivors may experience changes in their desire to be close to other people. Their levels of sexual desire and ability to enjoy usual sexual activities and sometimes in their ability to have children. In this section, we will openly discuss sensitive material about intimacy and sexuality and will offer practical suggestions for people who may be affected by problems commonly reported by cancer survivors. If this section is not of interest, please skip to the next section, Family Communication. Intimacy involves sharing yourself with another person in more ways than through sex. Holding hands, touching, hugging, and caring deeply about another person, as well as sharing feelings, hopes, dreams, fears, emotions, and religious values are all aspects of an intimate relationship. If you were involved in a relationship as you went through treatment, that relationship may have become stronger through the course of your treatment. In some cases, however, a relationship will not last because of the stress of treatment or because of other issues that surface during or after treatment. Your feelings about life may change, and this may affect your intimate relationships. Whether you were involved in a relationship during treatment or not, you may become involved with someone new in the future. Think about when and how you will share the fact that you have had cancer. Talking about your cancer history is personal and can be very important, especially early on in a new relationship. You may want to consider waiting until you and your partner have had a chance to get to know one another and feel comfortable with each other before discussing your cancer experience in depth. Once you have established good communication skills and feel comfortable being with and talking with each other, it may be easier to talk about your cancer experience. When you do decide to share this information, don't assume that your partner will react in any particular way. 
If you are defensive or confrontational, you might frighten your partner. Television shows and movies have portrayed cancer as a painful, traumatic, and often fatal disease. An unfortunate but normal response to hearing the word cancer is to be afraid and to believe that the person with cancer will die. Be open to helping your partner understand the effect your cancer history has had on your health and on the way you lead your life now. Some types of cancer, like cancers of the breast, prostate, urinary tract, uterus, ovary, vagina, cervix, or testicles, are associated with obvious changes in sexuality. However, it's important to keep in mind that any type of cancer can affect sexuality. Sexuality is more than just the physical acts involved in intercourse. Human sexuality is a reflection of how we see ourselves, both as individuals and in relation to others. It includes how we feel about our bodies, our need for touch, our libido or level of interest in sexual activity, communicating our sexual needs to a partner, and the ability to enjoy sexual activity. Sexuality is complex and involves many factors, including the desire for emotional intimacy. For some people, the ability to have children can affect their sexuality. A cancer diagnosis and the treatments that follow can affect sexuality in many ways. As a cancer survivor, you have probably experienced physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual changes in your life. Any of these can have an impact on your sexuality and your desire for intimate contact with others. Additionally, the use of some medications, fatigue, or emotional stress can lead to a loss of the desire for sexual activity. Many survivors who experience pain, discomfort, discharge, or bleeding during their first attempts at sexual intercourse after cancer treatment assume that they can no longer enjoy sex. This is not true. Different positions, various types of lubrication, more attention to foreplay, improved communication between partners, and talking with a sex therapist can help survivors deal with problems encountered during sexual activity. Let's focus on the different challenges that affect women and men who are cancer survivors. Sarah is a sex therapist who works with cancer survivors. The most common sexual problems that women face after cancer treatment are the lack of interest in sexual intimacy, pain during intercourse, the inability to achieve orgasm, and problems with lubrication. Women need both of the hormones, estrogen and testosterone, to maintain interest in sexual activity. Hormonal treatment for cancer that changes levels of estrogen or testosterone can change libido, which is another word for level of sexual desire. Too little estrogen can cause vaginal dryness, which can interfere with sexual intercourse. If your cancer is not sensitive to levels of estrogen in the bloodstream, your doctor may prescribe estrogen replacement therapy to increase estrogen levels and improve vaginal lubrication. If your cancer is sensitive to estrogen, as some forms of breast and ovarian cancers are, you may be able to take estrogen in the form of a cream, vaginal pill, suppository, or through an estradiol ring inserted into the vagina. These forms of estrogen therapy can help with vaginal lubrication, 
without increasing the levels of estrogen in your body's circulatory system. But be sure to talk with your doctor about your individual situation. In addition to hormonal treatment, several good lubricants can be used to overcome vaginal dryness. Generous amounts of a water-based lubricant, such as KY Jelly, Replens, Astroglide, Hydrosmooth, or other brands should be applied to the labia, vagina, penis, or vibrator to ease penetration, prevent pain, and minimize the risk of injury to the vaginal wall. This can be turned into sexual foreplay so that it becomes a source of pleasure for both partners. Women who have experienced painful intercourse after treatment or surgery may have been involuntarily tensing the genital muscles during foreplay. This makes penetration more difficult, causing pain, which in turn further increases fear, anxiety, and muscle tensing, and may consequently lead to avoidance of sexual intercourse entirely. Cancer survivors who find that sexual intercourse is no longer comfortable may need to change positions, add lubrication, and practice muscle relaxation exercises. Additionally, they could use this as an opportunity to learn about other sexual positions and techniques that they might enjoy. A woman who experiences pain during intercourse may want to try positions where she is on top or side by side so that she can control the angle and depth of penetration. Generous use of lubrication will also help minimize discomfort. Women who have been treated with certain forms of surgery or radiation need to know that these treatments can cause the vagina to become narrower and less flexible. This is called vaginal stenosis. Women who are at risk for vaginal stenosis need to use vaginal dilators to make sure that the vagina remains open. Even if these women do not plan to be sexually active in the future, it is still important to use vaginal dilators to keep the vagina open and flexible for future vaginal examinations by their health care providers. Among men, erectile dysfunction, sometimes referred to as impotence, is a common physical and emotional problem following treatment for prostate cancer. Many affected men become depressed about the loss of sexual function and about not being able to meet the sexual needs of their partners. These men should know that there are many different ways to approach the problem. Let's hear about Jim's experience. After my surgery for prostate cancer, my wife and I wondered about how soon we would be able to start having intercourse again. We spoke with the surgeon, who said we could start as soon as I felt physically up to it. He wanted us to be aware, though, that it could take up to a year or more for erections to return to normal, or to the firmness they had been prior to surgery. We tried when I thought I was ready, but we were extremely disappointed after our first few attempts. So we decided to get help from a specialist in erectile dysfunction. He provided me with some medication that might help make the erections more firm while my body was adjusting and recovering. This was very helpful. It took away some of the worry I was having about performance. My wife was also happier with the results. I learned that it's important not to be afraid to ask for the help you need. Erectile dysfunction may be related to damage to the nerves or the blood vessels supplying the penis, 
and it could also relate to the stress and emotions that men with prostate cancer frequently experience. A doctor who specializes in treating erectile dysfunction can determine the cause of the problem and suggest ways to treat it. Most doctors who specialize in erectile dysfunction are urologists, but there are a few general practice doctors who are certified in treating erectile dysfunction. A good resource is www.impotencespecialists.com, where you can get a referral to a specialist in your geographic area. There are several types of medicines that can be taken to induce an erection. Some, like Viagra, Cialis, or Levitra, are taken in pill form. Other medicines are rubbed on the penis to relax blood vessels, or inserted or injected into the penis or urethra to cause a erection. Some men may not be able to take Viagra or similar medications because these may interfere with other medications these men are already taking, or because of some other medical condition unrelated to their cancer. Any doctor who treats a man for erectile dysfunction must know about all the medicines that person is taking, including over-the-counter and herbal medicines, so that potentially harmful chemical interactions between these medications can be avoided. There are also different types of penile implants and other devices to help men achieve and maintain an erection. If psychological or emotional factors contribute to the problem, Talking with a licensed sex therapist can be helpful. The American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists provides a listing of certified sex educators and counselors by state. Men whose maintenance therapy for prostate cancer involves the use of hormones will need to talk with their doctors about options for preserving sexual function. Treatment of testicular cancer may involve surgical removal of a testicle. This treatment does not make a man sterile as long as he has one functioning testicle. However, some men are bothered by their appearance after this surgery, and this can affect their ability to achieve and maintain an erection. Men who are thinking about having a testicular prosthesis implanted, either at the time of the original surgery or at any time afterward, should know that many experts do not recommend testicular implants for cosmetic reasons. Additionally, surgical fees for this procedure are high, and most public and private insurance plans will not pay for it. After the perceived problems with silicone breast implants among women, testicular implants are not generally offered in the United States. Some companies are making saline-filled implants that could be more readily available. Men who have had lymph nodes removed from their pelvic area or groin may have had damage to the nerves that control ejaculation. If so, they may still experience the sensations of sexual activity and ejaculation, but without the release of fluid during ejaculation. Men who have had their prostate gland or seminal vesicles removed or who have had radiation therapy after prostate cancer may also experience orgasm with little or no fluid being released. The absence of fluid will not affect their ability to have an orgasm. In some cases, the semen is produced, but flows into the bladder rather than moving into the penis. This is called retrograde ejaculation. The feelings of ejaculation are not affected, but no fluid is released.
The semen and sperm will eventually be carried out of the bladder with the urine, which might look cloudy. For men considering sperm banking, sperm can be harvested using methods other than ejaculation. All cancer survivors whose sexuality and specifically sexual organs have been affected by cancer or cancer treatment can benefit from taking time to explore sensations in other areas of the body. The areas of the nipples, inner thigh, ears, neck, and face are all very sensitive to stimulation. Try different types of touch, from a light touch using the fingers, a piece of silk, or a feather, to a deeper, massaging type of touch, until you discover techniques that work for you and your partner. It's also possible that sexual function may be affected in ways that are not directly related to the sexual organs. For example, survivors who get short of breath during physical activity need to plan ahead for sexual activity. Survivors who use supplemental oxygen should make sure that they have enough oxygen in the tank and that the tubing is long enough to allow them to move around freely during sexual activity. These people may find breathing easier if they do not lie flat on their backs. Positions that involve either sitting upright or standing may be more comfortable, since they allow the lungs to fully expand and take in more oxygen with each breath. These people should be sure to tell their partners if they are getting short of breath. If so, they should take a rest or slow the pace of their activity until they no longer feel short of breath. Survivors who have conditions that make their bones fragile, like multiple myeloma or bone metastases, may be concerned about the possible impact of sexual activity on their bones. Careful positioning may make sexual activity possible, comfortable, and safe even for these people. Generous use of pillows, roll towels, and blankets can provide for comfort and support. Any survivor who experiences pain at any time during sexual activity should tell his or her partner immediately and check if the affected part of the body can be moved without pain. They should contact their doctor right away if there is redness or swelling at the site of the pain or if the pain does not go away in a reasonable time. Finally, anyone who is sexually active, whether they have cancer or not, should take precautions against sexually transmitted diseases. Any exchange of body fluids between people creates a risk of transmitting an infectious disease. The best protection against sexually transmitted diseases is to always use a latex condom which can be used with water-based lubricants, such as KY jelly. These should be used for oral sex, vaginal intercourse, or anal intercourse. Before performing oral sex on a woman, a dental dam or plastic wrap should be placed over the woman's vulva to prevent possible transmission of infection. When performing oral sex on a man, the use of flavored condoms or topping a regular condom with flavored, water-based lubricant can diminish the taste of the barrier. Your doctor, oncology nurse, or social worker may have talked to you about fertility issues before you started treatment. 
Survivors who do not want to have children should practice an effective method of birth control. Survivors who knew before their cancer treatment that they would want to keep their options open were probably offered the chance to bank sperm or to freeze embryos, ovarian tissue, or eggs. If you did not do any of these things before treatment and you later decide that you do want to have children, there are things you should consider. You may want to talk with a reproductive endocrinologist or a fertility specialist. New techniques are constantly being developed to treat infertility. A growing number of doctors, nurses, social workers, and other providers are not only comfortable talking about sexuality and intimacy, but they have developed a great deal of expertise in it. Sometimes, all that's needed is to simply bring up the question. If you don't feel comfortable with the provider you have, ask for a referral to another provider with the expertise you need. In summary, the desire for intimacy is a basic human trait. It brings joy to our lives and allows us to give joy to others in a variety of ways. Survivors may find that using survival skills, such as finding information, communicating, negotiating, solving problems, and making decisions, which are found in earlier toolbox programs, helpful as they explore new ways of expressing intimacy and sexuality in current and new relationships. Section 3. Family Communication Mark is 50 years old and was diagnosed with kidney cancer about a year and a half ago. He is married and has two teenage sons and a teenage daughter. Let's hear what he says about the impact of his diagnosis on his family. Since my cancer surgery, some things have had to change permanently in our family. Before, we all knew what our jobs around the house were. Everything went pretty smoothly. My wife and I both work outside the house, and at home, we had different things to take care of. I kept up with the cars and things that needed to be done around the house. I also paid the bills and managed the finances. My wife took care of all the shopping and kept everybody organized. Our teenage kids concentrated on their schoolwork, sports, and summer jobs. Since I've had cancer, my wife and our kids have had to do a lot of my share. My sons take turns cutting the grass and doing the yard work, but they can't really handle the harder maintenance jobs. My daughter is now in charge of getting the cars serviced on schedule and has to drive me to doctor appointments sometimes. My wife is working overtime to help make ends meet. I feel so dependent, almost useless. Sometimes when I'm really frustrated, I get mad at them for no reason. I don't mean to. I just want to get back to normal. A family is a social system. Change in one part of the system causes change in the other parts. A cancer diagnosis for one family member can change the ways the entire family communicates and gets along. Sometimes, the change can have long-lasting effects on all family members. Many researchers have found that some of the most difficult problems that cancer survivors face are the reactions of the people closest to them, their family members, friends, and co-workers. To learn more about communication skills, you can listen to the Cancer Survival Toolbox program entitled Communicating. Linda, the social worker, sees how a cancer diagnosis affects individuals and their families. Families can take all different forms. They don't have to be bound by blood or legal relationships. 
In times of trouble, we usually think of families as a refuge, a place of support. Even the word home has special significance for most people in times of stress. Stress is an expected part of family life, but cancer puts extraordinary stress on families. For some families, the challenge of cancer can offer the chance for personal growth and can actually strengthen bonds within the family. But extreme and prolonged stress can have a negative effect on even the strongest and closest families. It's not only during the initial cancer crisis that families face new and tough challenges. Once treatment ends, family members continue to need information that will help with recovery of their loved one and readjustment for the entire family. As we heard from Mark, family members may need to take on new responsibilities, at least for a while. They may also have to make tough financial decisions. They have to find ways to continue supporting one another emotionally while they manage a new set of fears and uncertainties. Each of these changes requires family communication. Open communication and the expression of feelings within the family are crucial to creating a healing environment and for helping each other gain the strength necessary to deal with the long-term effects of cancer. Remember that while separate cancer crises may come and go, cancer itself is a long-term illness. You will need to maintain or develop good communication skills so your family can adapt over the long haul. And you need an understanding of what kinds of factors create communication barriers so you can overcome them. For example, family members may have differing views about cancer and its treatment. They too are frightened and concerned for their loved ones. Is the cancer really gone? Will it come back? Was the treatment aggressive enough or was it too aggressive? Sometimes they may disagree with the doctor's recommendations about follow-up care. Good communication continues to be important after treatment ends, and getting answers to their questions can help family members feel more secure. But the cancer survivor has to have the final word about health-related issues. Family disagreements and undue pressure about follow-up care and about the health habits of the cancer survivor only add to the stress level of the whole family. Serious illness can often intensify the strong relationships that already exist within a family. It also may intensify existing family problems. For example, if a child is not doing well in school, his or her grades are not likely to improve when an additional family problem like cancer comes up. Likewise, marital or financial problems often get worse when someone in the family develops a serious illness. Substance abuse, including excessive use of alcohol, use of illegal drugs, misuse of prescription drugs, as well as eating disorders, may also become more severe for a family member or the cancer survivor when new problems arise. This can be especially hard these days, since so many families are already stretched by the demands of taking care of both young children and elderly relatives. Sometimes, existing problems do seem to self-correct, for a short time, as everyone focuses on an immediate cancer crisis. Eventually, however, the increased stress will probably take its toll. If someone in your family has a personal problem or is caught up in destructive behavior, do all you can to get them to seek counseling or go together for family therapy so that your family doesn't get overwhelmed. If a loved one will not seek help, seek counseling without them so you can get help in managing your own responses to the ongoing family problem and to any new crisis. I always talk with cancer survivors about specific ways to avoid common barriers to family communication. First, keep cancer in perspective. Cancer can be treated 
controlled, or managed. Don't let the negative myths and fears about cancer get in the way of family communication. The cancer survivor and his or her family members need accurate and honest information about cancer, its treatment, cancer recovery, as well as long-term survival, including recurrences and possible second cancers. Second, periodically review the ways in which family roles and activities have changed or may need to change. For example, will you need to delay or cancel a vacation or family event this year? Have finances changed? And if so, what does that mean for your family? On the other hand, talk about things that have remained the same or don't need to be changed. It's important to remind each other of the love you have for one another, the value of family time, and the need to continue special activities and celebrations that keep you together as a family. If family roles have changed, are the changes temporary or more permanent? One suggestion I often make is to change assignments or responsibilities among family members when possible every few months. This way, nobody becomes too burdened by any one task or responsibility. It usually helps to avoid having all of the personal care tasks fall on only one person. Consider asking a teenager in the family and close family friends to share the care. For example, a teenager who drives could take you to follow-up appointments with your doctor or help with other errands. This will enable the teenager to learn more about your progress or your continuing recovery and will also provide an opportunity for private and meaningful conversation between the two of you. If you worked before your cancer diagnosis and treatment, talking with your boss about your employment situation every few weeks or months can be very important. Will your employer need to make changes so you can return to work? Or will you need to find a different type of work that is better suited to your energy level and recovery process? Keep in mind that you have rights in the workplace. Some people use their experience with cancer as an opportunity to evaluate many fundamental aspects of their lives. Some will be eager to return to their original jobs and activities, but others will want to explore new options. A third suggestion for avoiding barriers to communication, think about and plan exactly how you're going to go back to work and other outside activities. Many friends, neighbors, and co-workers will be curious about your illness and prognosis. Most will ask questions because they care about you and want to be supportive. Some people, however, are simply interested in the drama of a serious illness or they like to gossip. Don't feel like you have to share the details of your health with everyone who asks. You and your family may want to practice answers to difficult questions so that when other people ask, you will have your answers ready. Keeping lines of communication open between you and your family, friends, and your boss are all important for helping you discover your life beyond cancer. Listen to Mark's experience on an issue that might seem relatively minor, but can be a continual stumbling block for many survivors. What I find most difficult in communicating with some acquaintances is that they think things are actually worse than they are, especially since I haven't been able to return to work yet. This one woman from work always asks me how I am. When I say I'm fine, it's like it's never a good enough answer for her. She'll lean in close, lower her voice, and ask, how are you really? You know what? I'm really not interested in sharing a lot of details with her. I resent her being so nosy. Discussing and even practicing different kinds of responses with close family members might help Mark come up with a simple statement that will stop people from asking these kinds of questions. 
Sometimes you just have to be blunt. You might simply ask, why don't you believe me when I tell you I'm fine? Or sometimes humor does the trick. You could ask, what are you doing, writing a book about me? Or you may need to be clear that you are beyond discussing the cancer. What you want to talk about is the future or how things are going at work. The responses should be ones that you are comfortable saying. Take time to think about and talk through responses to these kinds of questions so that you are prepared when you need to be. A fourth suggestion for avoiding barriers to communications, avoid family burnout. We usually think of burnout affecting an individual person who's been under a lot of stress, coping with a physically or emotionally difficult situation over a long time. Burnout sets in when that person finally reaches the point at which he or she is completely wiped out, drained of the energy and motivation needed to keep on coping. The same thing can happen to a family that's been coping with a stressful situation, like caring for a family member with cancer over a long time. Family burnout can occur during the initial cancer crisis and over the duration of treatment that may extend for many months or even years. The signs of burnout range from physical symptoms, like fatigue and exhaustion, frequent headaches or sleeplessness, to behavioral and psychological symptoms, such as being quick to anger, feelings of being unappreciated, and being unable to make decisions. Sometimes symptoms lead to escapist behavior, and an individual may start using alcohol or drugs to avoid the overwhelming feelings of stress. Sometimes stress can lead to domestic violence. Problems like this demand professional help. Two major clues to burnout are increased cynicism and feelings of being indispensable. You or your loved ones may become cynical about the slowness of your recovery after treatment or about the accessibility of your healthcare team. Or you may start feeling despair that the situation will never get better. This cynicism may be linked to anger, and you may be directing your angry feelings about the situation or your sense of hopelessness at family members, your friends, or your doctor. On the other hand, family members may direct their anger and frustration at the family member with cancer. If this is happening, it needs to be addressed directly. Your social worker is a good resource for issues like this. Feeling indispensable is another sign of burnout. A family member who believes that he or she always has to be involved in caregiving, no matter how tired or stressed out they are. They may set aside their own personal goals, gratification, or even health so that they can always be around to help their loved one. Some people call this the martyr complex, when one person sacrifices personal well-being for the family's sake. It is very important that all family members take care of their own health. This means eating right, exercising, and taking time to relax and get enough rest. If not, the martyr may suffer burnout and could become resentful, and you may begin to feel smothered by a loved one who is so worried about you that they want to do everything for you even after you have finished your treatments. They need to know that part of your survivorship involves getting back to being independent. The entire family, including the family member with cancer, should try to continue outside interests, hobbies, sports, and exercise programs as much as possible. If not, this can be an area of family conflict. Sometimes family members feel like the individual who had cancer isn't trying hard enough to get back to normal, or that they should be getting on with life, not dwelling on the illness. On the other hand, family members can become overprotective, and some even have difficulty giving up the caretaker role. You may feel you're ready to return to work, that it would be helpful to feel productive again, 
Your spouse or partner may worry that it will be too much for you or that you'll have a setback if you return to work or other activities too soon. If this creates a conflict, you may want to meet jointly with your doctor, oncology nurse, or physical therapist to discuss what level of activity might be optimal for you. A final suggestion for avoiding barriers to communication. Work at becoming better at asking for what you need. This applies to you, the survivor, as well as to family members who need to ask assertively for what they need. At times of serious illness and increased tension, many people put their own needs on hold and feel that it would be selfish to ask for something they personally want or that it would be wrong to keep up with their own personal interests. After a while, this denial of personal needs can become the family norm and resentment builds up. Do not assume that other family members know what you think, feel, or need. They are involved in the same situation and may not have taken your needs into account. Similarly, you may have overlooked their needs and concerns. Eventually, you and your family will return to normal, but it will be a new normal. Living with a diagnosis and history of cancer does change some things, but not all change is bad. In fact, managing a serious medical condition over an extended period of time frequently leads to a higher level of functioning for the entire family. Families often draw closer together and can handle minor problems and stresses more easily. They may be able to communicate with each other more directly. They may get to know one another better and be able to recognize and acknowledge one another's strengths and weaknesses and provide support as needed. Good family communication skills can be learned, but you may need to get some specific training for dealing with cancer-related communication issues. If your family doesn't have the communication skills it needs, help is available. Talk with someone from your healthcare team, attend mutual support groups or community programs specific to cancer-related problem solving, or seek some individual or family counseling. We've covered a lot of ground in this section. To learn more about communication skills, listen to the Cancer Survival Toolbox program entitled Communicating. You can find more information on workplace discrimination in the Toolbox program entitled Negotiating or in the free booklet called Working It Out, Your Employment Rights as a Cancer Survivor. Information on ordering this booklet can be found in the resource booklet that accompanies the Cancer Survival Toolbox or online at www.canceradvocacy.org.